You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Here with Casey. Hi, Casey. Hello. And we're back with episode 13 of the Together in Literacy podcast. And we'll be jumping in in just a few minutes. Let's hear a review first from Nicole. Uh, Nicole wrote an, an review called Thank You. I love your podcast. I did my OG training a year and a half ago, and I'm halfway through my practicum. I am learning so much and am grateful for the amazing wealth of knowledge you are sharing. I would love to hear a post all about game ideas, how to turn learning into a game, easy, quick games, etc. I want to keep my students engaged and motivated, and I know everyone loves games. Thanks. So Nicole sent us this awesome review. I think before <laughs> we did the games episode. Yes. <laughs> Casey, what episode number was that? Let me think here. Uh, that was episode 11, I believe. Yes, 11. Yeah. So Nicole, I we loved hearing from you and hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the episode all about games. That was a lot of fun. It was. And of course, we want to hear from you. So if this uh, podcast is having a positive impact on your lives, please uh, send us a a little rating and a review. We'll love to share it on a future episode. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, today, friends, we are in episode 13. And before we get started on today's episode, I want to kind of talk about episode 12, where we talked about the Peter effect and the impact that teacher knowledge has on reading instruction. Um, You can check out that episode because Emily and I, we spoke about it in detail if you missed it. And we also talked about the metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, that the warning of some danger that lies ahead, which is a metaphor that we often use in our community when we're speaking about our dyslexic learners and core instruction. And so the Peter effect really spoke to the teacher knowledge and the impacts. And today we're going to shift the lens to looking at the effects on our children. And so we're going to take a look at the Matthew effect as it relates to reading development. And so in the education community, the Matthew effect refers to the idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in reading, as we know is also the case in other areas of life. And so really When children fail at early reading and writing, they dislike reading, right? (laughs) Makes sense. And so then they, they read less than their classmates who are stronger readers. 
which really can impact their growth and vocabulary, their higher level concepts, their access to higher level literary elements and so forth. So it really does have a lasting impact. Yes. And I love that we are backing this up once again to the Peter Effect episode. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 12, please make sure that you do that. So you can sort of see a large picture here, the effect of teacher training on our classroom instruction and also children's ability to be able to read effectively and its impact Mm -hmm. on their lives. This is a very broad scope. And one, I think in the Matthew effects that is pervasive yeah. in all areas and long lasting as is appropriate teacher training or inappropriate. Right. So uh, we are going to dig right into the Matthew effects and speak at it from the lens of literacy of reading. We know it can be carried over into other areas, as Casey said, of life, but our focus will be on reading. So uh, Keith Stanovich from University of Toronto has really studied this extensively, and we will be talking a little bit about his work with the Matthew effect and its effects on poor reading. Mm -hmm. I had found this quote and sort of addressing actually one from Stanovich, but also from a nine-year-old boy, slow reading acquisition has cognitive, behavioral, and motivational consequences that slow the development of other cognitive skills and inhibit performance on many academic tasks. To put it more simply, and sadly, in the words of a tearful nine-year-old already failing frustratingly behind his peers in reading progress, reading affects everything you do. And that was on the rightslaw.com website. And I just really can't say enough. Even that nine-year-old boy already come Mm -hmm. to the realization that reading affects everything you do, how just vitally necessary it is for us to be a literate society not just as a student in school, but also as an adult. We just really cannot stress enough how important this is to just continue having conversation about. So we're going to break this down into talking about what are the Matthew effects. And after that, we'll talk a little bit more about its concerns within the dyslexia community, because as you know, our podcast, we talk a lot about dyslexia awareness. We also discuss a lot about social emotional learning. So we'll be going into that. And then we want to end with ways we can combat the Matthew effects. What are some things that classroom teachers can do, families can do to offset this whole phenomenon? So the Matthew effect was first sort of described by, we have Wahlberg, Stein, and Stanovich. They were really Mm -hmm. looking at it through the lens of reading. And that describes what happens when young people fall behind in reading. And basically what it comes down to is when children fall behind in reading and fall behind their peers, then things get compounded. They do not feel that success in reading. So they do not want to read more. And that could be whether it's in the classroom or for enjoyment. And that becomes 
a perpetuating cycle in two ways. It can go in the direction of the successful perpetuating cycle. So the, the high flying readers just take off and continue. And then you have the struggling reader that gets sort of into this downward spiral and does not want to continue and does not feel that early success. And that is the negative perpetuating cycle. And Emily, I think it's important, you know, when we're talking about this, we see that perpetuating cycle. I think sometimes kids may get labeled as reluctant Mm. readers, where if we take a step back and we really think about the impacts that our instruction has in either helping children move forward, or if we're not providing what they need and they're either going down or, or not making gains, then, you know, if we're labeling children as reluctant, are they really being reluctant or are we not meeting them where they need to be met? Are they struggling readers instead? I don't know. I think that that term reluctant can sometimes pigeonhole kids and I'm just not a fan, but <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I, we see that we've seen that term for years and years and years mm-hmm. described, whether it's someone who may have dyslexia or not the reluctant reader. And sometimes I, instead of using the word reluctant, I may say a challenged reader, Mm -hmm. someone who just broadly finds reading to be challenging. I think when we put the label of reluctancy, then yes, that does have a bit of a, a negative connotation. Our words are powerful in what we say and the way we want to address children really, really matters especially someone who is not feeling the success of reading. Right. And then we can shift back to the Peter effect. And we're thinking of, do we have the knowledge then instead of thinking this, it's the child that's being reluctant. And do I, as the educator, have the knowledge to meet this child where they are to move them forward? It's just this shift in the lens, I think, from it being the child's being reluctant to, okay, how can I then meet the needs of the child instead? Right. And that just reminds me of, you know, I've talked about this in previous episodes that, oh my goodness, you know, as early teachers, if we just imparted our love of books, then Mm -hmm. that would just instantly just be showered over our children and they would want to love reading as well. But it's so much more than just having a love of books and wanting to impart that on our children. It's about having that knowledge and linking back to the Peter effect. Do teachers have the training to be able to recognize and pull out those red flags and to distinguish whether this is somebody who truly doesn't enjoy reading? Because not all kids do, right? We know that. Yeah. Someone who really does need appropriate intervention. Right. Because those negative perpetual cycles, you know, they're going to continue. If you have a child who we're not meeting their needs and they just keep experiencing these negative cycles that is going to affect both their academics and the social emotional impacts, which I know Emily and I see in our sessions with our children. And we've talked about how we spend time on both components throughout our lessons where we're addressing both the academic components and the social emotional pieces. Absolutely. And I was just mentioning to Casey before we started recording, how I've picked up a couple of new students and one student is a little bit older. And the self-talk is strong with this one and not in a good way and outwardly communicating that to me, this person already knows exactly how they feel because reading is hard. 
everything feels hard. So we have to be so, so careful in our intervention. And I, I have explained this to this parent that the academic and the social emotional really go hand in hand and Mm -hmm. almost sometimes 50, 50. Yeah. Just to get them over that initial hump to start to feel that success again. And it's a powerful corner they turn when they do, but it definitely takes breaking down some barriers at first. Yeah. And Emily and I have talked about that on some of our other episodes. Um, I think episode four, five, and six, we, we dove in pretty deep into some of the social emotional components and in lessons. So you can check those out as well. Yeah. I think episode four, we had talked about social emotional learning and I think we had some good picture book suggestions in there as well. Yeah. So definitely take a listen back to that one. So when we're talking about the Matthew effect, this is something that we want kids to be entering into a positive Mm -hmm. situation, right? We want them to learn to break the code so they can learn to read. And once they crack that code, what happens? We have kids who become fluent readers, who become automatic readers, who are able to free up that, all that extra cognitive space, right, Casey? Yep, absolutely. And when they're able to do that, then, then we're able to have those higher level inferences be made and, and access higher level vocabulary and higher level books, right? But when we are still working on breaking the code, we're not always able to access those independently. And so I think that's where, you know, things like audiobooks come into play as we're working on closing that achievement gap. But getting our kids into that positive loop is so important. Absolutely. So we want to get them to that, to sort of this level of automaticity so that they can be able to mm-hmm. enter that realm where they things feel a little less, oh, this is hard work. And, oh, okay, now we're reading a little bit more for not just cracking the code, but for enjoyment. Right. All right. And you want to open that world up for them. Yeah, All because right. the Peter effect, as Emily had mentioned earlier, it can be, you know, we have these lifelong impacts when we're talking about that, right? And so if, if something comes easy to you, then that is something that you want to maybe do and pursue. And then so you gain this higher level of vocabulary and higher, you have all this other cognitive time to spend thinking and doing critical thinking and all these extensions into reading, which really unlocks the world for us. And so if, but if we're on the other end where we're not able to access that code, then it's hard. And so we're kind of the gap widens between our students. And so I think that's really when we're talking about the Matthew effect and then how do, what does that mean for us as educators and being mindful of that gap and how it impacts our students, both academically and emotionally. Absolutely. And as we sort of segue a little bit into this now, when we discuss the Matthew effect, we hear a lot about that term in the dyslexia community. It is really a big additional concern because we certainly don't want this to become like a situation of the haves and the have nots. Mm-hmm. We, we know that for children with dyslexia, we know that early identification, appropriate intervention, 
addressing the social emotional piece is just so, so important. In addition to this being a concern, the, the Matthew effect, little term in there, sometimes you may hear people refer to as learned helplessness. And that is when you sort of get into this situation where you feel like, well, someone's going to be able to do this for me. So I don't have to put forth my all just, you know, I'll just put just enough in there because I'm going to get a lot, a lot of support here. Yeah. But we want to empower our children who have dyslexia by teaching them strategies, by teaching them self-advocacy and teaching them self-help skills that Mm -hmm. they can power through in their reading. And I think that goes along with the Matthew effect quite nicely. What do you think, Casey? I absolutely agree because that learned helplessness, especially when I'm working with older children, Mm. that's where it becomes very apparent that they have perhaps learned to wait a teacher out and they'll get the answers or, you know, and I understand because the pacing of classrooms, right. And all that, but, but when they're one-on-one in a session, there's nowhere for them to go. So I can, I can wait, wait you out and help you, but I'm not going to give you the answer. And I think that goes back then to our conversations about the gradual release of responsibility and that that explicit instruction that we provide, and then gradually releasing that responsibility back to the child to do the work. Because so often our children who have learned to kind of have that learned helplessness, they will wait for you to give them the answers. And so you want to really break that habit as well, or that cycle that, that may exist for them. Right. And you ever get into that situation where you're maybe doing simultaneous oral spelling, Casey, and um, this might be with a newer student and the student will write the word down and look back at you Mm -hmm. to check your reaction. Yes. I know. (laughs) Um, if you are an OG instructor, you need to have a really good poker face (laughs) (laughs) and because they pick up on these things so, so easily we want to build, but independence and confidence. Mm -hmm. So for instance, with one of my newer students, they're not particularly crazy about the steps of simultaneous oral spelling. <laughs> All right, let's just put it nicely. So I had, because we're around this time of this recording, we're close to St. Patrick's Day. I have the silly build a leprechaun on little magnets. It's okay. You follow the steps the way I have modeled them for you. Mm-hmm. We're going to add another piece to this leprechaun. Okay. You just earn the hat. Here's the buckle. Like, but they had to go through just the way I had shown them those steps. And it was like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) I want to build that (laughs) leprechaun. Will the leprechaun always be there? No, but because this is a new student that I'm trying to get them to learn to be more independent, this is a nice little scaffold. (laughs) Yes. So and St. Patrick's Day is over, I may have to, I don't know, find something else, may have to get a little bunny or a chick or something. Yeah. So, (laughs) and I think that, you know, getting, getting the kids to see that those steps really do benefit them. And especially if that's the point. (laughs) Yeah. And if they, and if they, you know, have either comes or other skills that they think are working for them, um, or that they've compensated with, sometimes they have to unlearn and then relearn the strategies that are going to work for them. So it all takes time and 
And as we link back this to, to the learned helplessness conversation, mm-hmm. you know, my, my goal ultimately is not to have that child looking back at me to see, is that right? Did I do right. it right? Right. No, it's for them to see. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is why it's correct. And I can explain why. Yep. And that's a great big leap of confidence. It is. All right. Uh, part three, we're segueing into this is, um, the linkage to a social emotional effects. Mm-hmm. So our podcast is, as we know, <laughs> addressing social emotional learning. Right. And Casey and I had a couple of episodes that we can discuss that we think really tie nicely with this, but we know that when kids feel motivated, feeling early success, what do they want to do? They want to do more of that thing. Right. Right. When my daughter was first learning how to hula hoop, get really, really angry with herself. (laughs) The more she kept hula hooping, the more she wanted to do it. And she added a second hula hoop. She's a lot like her dad with her athletic skills, not like me um, in that way, (laughs) but she was motivated. So we know with kids just feeling that early success, they want to continue on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That success can breed motivation for sure. Yes. So we talked a lot about feeling that success with the use of the decodable text that mm-hmm. was in um, episode eight, where we're freeing up cognitive space, to be able to practice our decoding skills to build up orthographic mapping. Also just feeling success, feeling confidence, feeling motivation all throughout. Right. And that is one way we can really combat the Matthew effects for sure. So make sure you um, check that one out. Casey, was there anything else that I, yeah. with I mean, that? I think, you know, Emily and I, everything we talk about really does tie back to connecting the academics to the social emotional learning and also to the metacognitive awareness, like those three really are so closely woven together for Mm. student success. But I think, you know, having conversations and I'm glad that I'm starting to see states around the U S making this move to start to have early identification and even early intervention. So instead of the, you know, wait to fail model, which is what we tend tended to use and waiting until third grade or later to Mm. provide interventions. Instead, I'm starting to see this shift to early interventions and early identifications. And that is so important for preserving our students' social emotional well-being, because if we can catch our kids early, provide them with that instruction that we know is appropriate, that is, that's how we can really start to create those perpetual positive cycles. And we really can combat the Matthew effects that way. Right. So that leads, we have a, quite a list here. So that was number one, making sure we have early ID. So, so important, but not just ID, like finding out those kids, like through child finds, through mm-hmm. our early screeners, early screeners, mm-hmm. excuse me. Yes. And then making a plan from there. It's not just enough to screen. Once you screen, right. you have to have a plan to intervene. <laughs> so I think we were in, in the U S in particular for a while there working really well on finding the screeners, but didn't quite have the plan in place. Right. I think that is now the tides turning there. So that's good. It, it takes time though, for sure, to get those changes in place. And we want to continue that good work that 
the different states are doing here mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. I know things really are changing and we have that early ID and intervention in place. I'm not as familiar uh, with what's going on in Texas, Casey, but I know here in Massachusetts. So, yeah, in Texas, they've had early screeners for the yeah. last at least 10 plus years with yeah. a dyslexia handbook in place now. Is it perfect? No, but it, we have something there and, you know. They have I a good handbook. They do. Yeah. I love reading the different states handbooks. I don't know. It just when I, when I see one posted like on social media or something, I always like to really take a look at it. A lot of hard work put into those. Absolutely. Um, so number two for ways we can combat the Matthew effects is to consider the classroom environment mm -hmm. and, you know, think about the way you not just staging your furniture um, think about the learning conditions, you know, is this a positive learning space, not too distracting, setting up space perhaps where kids can go to work quietly if needed, you know, not just having to stay just at one desk. Mm -hmm. Anything where they feel that this is their classroom community, I think when they first enter that space, I think any welcoming environment that you can offer will make them instill a feeling of success. I'm here. I'm important. I belong. I'm a valuable member of this classroom. Any of that language that we can just embed on a daily basis. I think part of that classroom environment is, uh, and if you don't do this already, but thinking about having that valuable time for the classroom morning meeting. And I know responsive classroom has been something people have been trained with for years and years and years. And there's just so many great morning meeting ideas that you can have that don't take a lot of time, but really get a, some good bang for your buck there. And I would add, mm -hmm. you know, classroom environment, while it's also, you know, the aesthetics, I think it's also that feeling. And when our when we as educators understand dyslexia specifically, mm. our kids who are dyslexic or who may be struggling in reading really feel understood. And I think that that is, that links then to how we respond academically and how we respond emotionally to our students. So I think that for me also comes into that environment piece. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, having those honest conversations at the beginning of the year, you're like, how do you learn best? Mm -hmm. You know, do you need someone to give a visual when they explain something, things like that. I love yeah. having those conversations at the beginning of the year, finding out and having them be able to express and explain. And then for number three, that kind of leads into that, right? So we want to make sure we provide all students the opportunity to shine. And again, the more that we understand our students, perhaps we can provide them with opportunities to shine in ways that may not be traditional responses in our classrooms and perhaps let them do a PowerPoint or an art project or some other way to show what they, what they know. Right. Casey, you remember that book we were talking about? I believe this was um, Books for Social Emotional Learning, Aaron Slater Illustrator. Yes. <laughs> and that was a beautiful example of letting a child, of the teacher letting the child shine. And he did that through, and he, he was a dyslexic character in that book. And mm -hmm. he, the way he was shining was through his beautiful illustrations and through that, his storytelling and his gifts. So yes, I think finding those opportunities to shine. I have said this before for all our, our firefly learners, right? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. 
Casey might've mentioned this already, but just as a little reminder, because we just kind of have to keep saying this again and again, is ending weight to fail and putting in a preventative model instead. So think about it. We're in a weight to fail scenario, then we're already at the failure point and that child has already begun that negative perpetuating cycle. They've mm-hmm. already begun to spiral down. Do we want that? No, we want a preventative model to be building upwards, always moving ahead, right? Seeing yeah. upward, up, uphill progress. Right. And I've even seen students are hyper aware of whether or not they are on par with their peers in terms of reading and the negative impacts begin really in first grade and sometimes even kinder in terms of how they're, they're doing that self-talk and, and how they're viewing themselves as a learner. So if we can do those preventative measures, we can really try to preserve students' self-esteem. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that was, that was number four, Casey, how about number five? <laughs> All right. Number five. So we want to make sure we can recognize at-risk behaviors with our students. And so when we're talking about things, you know, are they either willing to take risks for learning? Are they willing to trust that in, in what they know and trust in the teacher and not fall into that learned helplessness piece? Right. I think something else to really look for is how easily frustrated are they becoming? I think that's a big one. I think something, anybody, anybody that gets quickly frustrated, that's a trigger right there mm-hmm. that needs to be recognized. We're talking kids and adults, right? So anytime where they're feeling frustrated right away, okay, that can become a, an at-risk behavior. Just avoidance behaviors. Yeah. That's another yeah. one. And that really leads us into number six, which is, you know, having the students have their self perception and that growth mindset and that, that knowledge of themselves as learners so that they can respond academically and emotionally. You know, that can be woven in so beautifully through the use of picture books, through Mm -hmm. a bulletin board that might have a famous or inspirational quote, or maybe just like a famous person of the month featuring people that may also have dyslexia. If you work with children in that, in that setting and just sharing their experiences, all of those things where they recognize that they can and, and can identify in that way, I think just so, so, so powerful. It doesn't take a lot. When you talk, talk about just one picture book, how, opening up conversations, there's so many wonderful ones out there. I feel oh, like yeah. we've maybe talked about a bunch of them too, but yeah. I think we need to do another episode. Everyone. I know um, there's so many more we could ask. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's so important for, to have those conversations. And I know we, we did an episode now, I can't remember, but um, growth mindset and, and helping kids have this awareness of, you know what? Yeah, things are hard and we can, and it's okay that it's hard. And then these are the steps we can do to try to move forward. So, and modeling those types of behaviors and, and that, and talking out loud, talking it through with the students, our internal thought process can be really beneficial as well. Right. In case I'm just thinking, making a connection back to our, all our good discussions about metacognition. Yes. Right. Yeah. And self-actualization is metacognition, my friends. Yep. So definitely check back when we, we've had lots and lots of discussions uh, on that topic as well. 
number seven is acknowledge learning differences. And, and instead of, we, you know, a lot of times in the dyslexia community, we like to be able to say that they're learning differences yes. and not deficits, not deficits. And that is not to shy away from giving a label because I think it's important to use dyslexia, to say dyslexia, call it what it is so that we can make sure that we're providing the right interventions and that the child feels empowered to be able to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that we've, we've had discussions about how we explain the brain to kids mm-hmm. and just, you know, in kid-friendly language. So you can check back on that episode, but I think when we have that discussion about the brain, then we can say, you know, this is an empowering subject. This is not something that we have to feel uh, embarrassed about, that this is just the way things work. I love that Emily and I, as we were making this list, we were not thinking of all the episodes, but really we've, all of our episodes really are things that we can combat the Matthew effect with. So right? I love I'm, it. I'm cracking up as I'm going through these and I'm like, oh, that we talked about that in that episode. Yeah. And so, yes, and number, number eight, eight. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, you know, the importance of that direct and explicit instruction and mm-hmm. how that builds confidence. Oh, yeah. um, and I know we've talked about that in many episodes, but really for me, that is at the heart of our work that we do academically, we we have to provide that direct instruction. And, you know, Anita Archer, she has that beautiful quote about how, you know, how well they learn is how well we've taught them, or I'm not sure if the exact quote, but it's something along those effects. And to me, that really is at the heart of it, right? Like that's our job to lay this really solid foundation for our students. And to me, that is at the heart of the Matthew effect, because if they can break the code then they're able to read and then they're able to move forward and work on closing the gap. And they have access to, to the vocabulary and the higher level reading and all of those pieces that we want for our children. So for me, uh, number eight with the direct and explicit instruction, that is, that's the way we build confidence. Absolutely. And just to a reminder, direct and explicit instruction is in fact, student centered. Yes. At the heart of it all. It is student-centered, despite what some people might think. They think it might be teacher-centered. No, we have the students in mind when we use direct and explicit instruction at every step of the way. And you can refer back to that in the gradual release to responsibility episode. Right. And I please think don't we also ask me what number it. it was. I know, I know. And I think we also talked about it in the Peter effect, because I think what you'all see yeah. y'all is that these, these topics kind of keep overlapping and weave into all of our episodes. So I think we're getting our message across Casey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number nine is family communication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a big one. I think to be empathetic and aware that families have all different backgrounds, all walks of life, all different makeups of families Mm -hmm. and to honor that, be respectful of that, but also to know that uh, communication really, really can be so powerful so that families know that you're both on the same page when it comes to helping their child. So, so important. So, um, you know, having, whether it's a little newsletter, a little newsletter, something explaining that, you know, oh, these are the reading strategies that you can use with your child at home when they're stuck Mm -hmm. on a word, things like that, that they can support at home. So, so helpful. Yes. Um, Even just like, you know, modeling with a little video, I think can be 
you know, just like a quick couple of minutes, I think could be helpful. And then Casey, we've got number 10. Number 10 is the option for additional tutoring to help reduce stress. And this is something I know that not everyone may have access to tutoring outside of the school day. And Emily and I were talking about this, you know, we both worked in title one schools. Mm -hmm. And so I know that when I worked in the title one schools, we provided tutorials after school that were paid through title one funds. So sometimes our children do need extra support in either a smaller group or one-on-one setting. And that can be really powerful because we're able to address student needs. We're able to address their social emotional impacts that they're, that they may be experiencing in a setting that is small enough to really target their specific needs. And so if that's an option for you, either, you know, through your school or independently, that certainly can help to reduce stress as well. Absolutely. I think the environment of being one-on-one outside or in a small group, outside of the typical classroom setting where, you know, a child is there six plus hours all day long, getting them into just a little more of a relaxed state and focusing on doing one thing really, really well, because each one of our lessons in tutoring just focuses on, you know, one particular skill or concept and practicing that, you know, using the multi-sensory approach and using games to help them feel engaged and motivated and Mm -hmm. giving them reading materials where they're experiencing that success. I think we really are doing our level best to just keep reducing that stress level, that cortisol, so that when they enter into the classroom setting, then things just don't feel like they're in such a negative state. And can we remove all the stress? No, but can we equip children? 100%. I think that by discussing both the Peter effects and Matthew effects, we want you to take this conversation back to your schools, right, Casey? Yeah. I mean, so we kind of approached it through the, through the lens of that, you know, the Peter effect is really talking about the teacher and teacher knowledge and what we can do as educators in terms of educating ourselves and, and equipping ourselves with what we need to meet the needs of our students. And then the Matthew effect is really talking about the student and that achievement gap and, and what that means when students are either able to be those high flyers or to, to access the code. And then what happens when they're not and how we want to, make sure that we're addressing it so that our students are closing that gap and not that the rich become richer and the poor become poor in terms of reading. Exactly. Exactly. We want to keep things equitable for all our children in terms of getting them to become successful readers and give them those opportunities the best way we know how. So we're going to wrap this episode up with a question from a listener. Hello, Emily and Casey. I love your podcast. I have a question that I wondered if you might be able to address at some point. I am wondering about strategies to help students who can decode well, their fluency is great. So they appear to be reading, but they do not comprehend anything they read. How can we support these students? All right. Well, thank you first off for listening and for sending in your question. We always appreciate those. Emily and I, we were talking about this and, you know, I think there's definitely a few strategies that we can address with students who may have weak comprehension and and they may have weaker comprehension for a multitude of reasons, you know, 
But some of the things that we can think about is doing some mini lessons and teaching that thinking voice so that the student understands that when they're reading, yeah, they're reading the words, but we should also have this internal voice that's like thinking, that's asking questions. And are they noting that they're asking questions or have a wondering or made a connection? Sometimes I've noticed when I've done lessons like that with students who had struggled reading, they didn't know that that was what they were supposed to be doing. They didn't, they were just like, I just read the words, <laughs> you know? And so sometimes you may need to do an explicit lesson on the thinking voice. And then to tie into that, also having explicit lessons on visualization, because we should be making a mind movie or, you know, an image in our mind, whether we're reading one word or a phrase, a sentence or a paragraph or story, right? We want to be creating this, this visualization in our mind. And I know we had a whole episode on, on that as well. (laughs) Yes. We talked a lot about visualization. Definitely can aid in comprehension. And you can just start with just very, very short, short clips, sometimes just a sentence to see what they're picturing in their mind to aid their comprehension. A couple of other things. I just want to backtrack just for a minute because thinking back to my own students in my classroom as a classroom teacher, we have some really precocious little readers that appear to be beautiful decoders, but it looked like their comprehension was impacted. What I like to try and do is make sure I had an up-to-date nonsense word assessment on those kids. And why? Have they just memorized a whole big slew of words and become really, really great sight word readers? When you give them a nonsense word assessment, that's just strictly seeing if they know the code. So I'd like to see if there are any little gaps in there that I'm missing to make sure that I really am not missing any part of their foundational skills. Yeah. So there's just like a quick one page nonsense word assessment that you can give. There's a free one on Scholastic you can download um, that I've used for years. I just, I I always like to have just like that extra piece of the puzzle and up-to-date nonsense word assessment on these kids. And then backtracking to visualization, a couple of other things to keep in mind, explicit vocabulary instruction Mm -hmm. and using appropriate questioning where students have to elicit certain responses where they are using the words with greater utility. And there's the book, Bringing Words to Life, Mm -hmm. Isabel Beck. Oh my gosh, what a goldmine. I love, love, love that book for appropriate questioning with explicit vocabulary instruction. Definitely check that out. The other piece that we cannot forget about is story grammar. We have to incorporate grammar and syntax in our Mm -hmm. language development. And and we can do that in the context of stories. So when we're reading, making sure we know who the characters are, who is speaking at this point of the story, pronouns really trip kids up, right? right? Quotations really trip kids up. Like who just said that? So those are some other considerations we want to make sure that we are keeping tabs on with our kids. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And I would add to paying attention to language responses, oral Mm. language responses. Like, are they able to express themselves in complete sentences or are they using fragmented sentences? And then are they, are they simple sentence response, compound sentence response? Are they using proper syntax and pragmatics and all of those pieces? Because if, if they can't respond orally, if you're having them do it written wise, that that's perhaps, you know, that would be very, very hard, but 
analyzing where they are in their language as well. Right. And a child with expressive language issues, that's certainly going to be something that could be impacting their comprehension and should be referred to, you know, speech and language pathologist in that way. Right. So if they're like, a word is just on the tip of their tongue, <laughs> or they're not speaking in complete mm -hmm. sentences, or what are what they are replying back with is something that's just like completely off the mark. Those are some other things you want to keep in mind. Yeah. And I think the other thing you can do is look at how you can help them break if, if they are reading independently, and then you're asking them questions, perhaps break it into smaller chunks right? Don't let them get all the read through a whole passage and then ask them questions at the end. So put little stop signs or stickers or something along the way and have them stop and do some self-monitoring skills and check in. Did they understand that first paragraph? Did they understand the first sentence? Did they, and then you can identify as Emily said, you know, what's the subject? What's the, you know, what's the problem? What, where is it happening? All of those pieces you right. can identify as you're going along to yeah. make sure that they don't get to the end and they're like, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think with the whole like sticky note reading, I think mm -hmm. that with, with younger students, I think they need a really directed sticky note process that yes. if you are going to have them read at certain points in the story that they stop. Okay. At this point of the story, I want you to jot down on a sticky note, right? Who was having the problem in this paragraph or what happened next? The other thing I love love Casey. I don't know if you've used this, but project read story form. Mm -hmm. and, I'm sorry. With the right? oh, No, yeah. Story form. There's yeah. different project read components had the old little symbols of the story map. Yeah. Do you remember those? I do. House with the clock yeah. and the little looks like knots and string for the events mm -hmm. and the wish and so forth. And I think having that manipulative is really, really helpful yes. where, especially for having children retell the story, they right. need to have that little prompt or that manipulative near them. That's a great multi-sensory tool for their it reading is. comprehension. Yeah. So what Emily's yeah. talking about is in, they have it where you tie a knot yeah. in project read and you, and as the children like physically move down the string at each little knot is a different component to the story elements. And so yeah. you physically move through it as you're going through your story. So right. it's a great I had little lamb, tool. I had little laminated pieces so that they each had their own, but those were so, so helpful. So if you haven't had a chance to look that up and I know for me, I love anything Project Read. I've, mm -hmm. I've been using a lot of pieces of Project Read for many, many years. Hopefully we've given you some food for thought. We've actually thrown out a lot of consideration. We could probably do a whole episode. Yeah. On and this is what happens deeper. when you get the both of us together. We, yeah. So we may have given you more than you could have needed, but that's a good thing. <laughs> okay. Casey and I are super excited because we have some nice guest speakers coming up and we, we just going to tell you who they are, but we do have some, some wonderful ones speaking directly towards uh, dyslexia advocacy mm -hmm. and helping families out too. And I think these are going to be so great. What do you think? I think so too. I'm really excited. Yeah. To both yeah. Of them on. So we'd love to hear from you. Please ratings, feedback, uh, reach out to us. You'll see the show notes and the blog at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Uh, what's the email again, Casey? 
<laughs> you can reach us at support yes. at com. Yes. And bear with us if we don't get back to the emails right away, but we will. And a lot of times we ask if we can just address uh, your question in a future episode. Right. So uh, we will see you next time. And thank you so much for joining us today. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.